0: Greetings, and welcome to episode number one of Earth Repair Radio. Yeah, it's a biological,
1: it's the, it's the regenerative revolution, it's the, rest, it's the restoration revolution. I mean, I can say this personally, there's, there's nothing like the high that you get
0: from helping somebody.
1: I mean, the most challenging environments... are, are to me, the most interesting.
0: Hello, my name is Andrew Millison, and I am your host. And today, we have a really special guest. It is Ramis Kent. Ramis is the co-director of the Permaculture Research Institute. He's a member of the Permaculture Sustainable Consultancy Party Limited. He was born in the U.S., but he now lives in the United Kingdom, and he works in some of the most degraded landscapes on the entire planet. His work spans from North and East Africa to the Arabian Peninsula throughout the Middle East to Southern Europe and Central Asia. From his really vast on-the-ground experience, Ramis explains the depth of connection between permaculture, land degradation, and global security. He talks about his experience in Somalia quite a bit, and we really hit some places of connection between global peace, security, refugees, and the health of the landscape. So without further ado, here's the interview with Ramis Kent. All right, welcome, Ramis. Thank you so much for agreeing to spend a, some time and talk to me here. Um, really, I'm really honored to have you on the show, and I'm just really honored to be able to have a conversation with you and broadcast it out to the people
1: well, I'm 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 uh I'm humbled and flattered.
0: So, Ramis, what have you been working on these days that you're really fired up about?
1: Well, a, a topic that's been of particular interest to me is um, is uh, desertification and land degradation, and specifically how that uh, how that condition uh, affects. Uh, You know prospects for establishing um, some kind of meaningful uh, measure of of security for for uh, for people. You know, in in terms of addressing problems, of course, connected to um, food 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 insecurity, water insecurity, Um, also uh, the the propensity for armed conflict, the, the conditions for armed conflict to to emerge. Uh, as well as uh, just overall uh, environmental security, just people having a a place that they can call home um, that provides them with some de- degree of stability. I, I think my interest in in permaculture really um, lies at the heart of addressing that particular issue. Um, I, I think we've we've tended to uh, focus, at, at least in the states there's been a particular focus on, um, you know, agriculture, homesteading, uh, you know, um, market gardens, those, those kinds of things. Um, but I think when you extend the, the scope of, of what permaculture has to offer people, I think you really have to look at, at those particular issues of, um, you know, of this expanding problem of land degradation and desertification. And I think because of, you know, most of my work happens to be outside of the U.S., um, you know, I think you have you have that much more of an appreciation as to uh, the the size and the scale and the impact of, of those issues. And just looking at a lot of the things, a lot of the problems that are emerging in the world now, um, the degree to which those things are of, of uh, massive influence. So. You know, I work mostly in um, you know North Africa, uh, Middle East, uh, East Africa, uh, some of the uh, like Southern Mediterranean, let um, should just say Southern Europe. You know, in the in the in the, uh, in the Mediterranean uh, region, uh, and also have done some work in Central Asia and Southeast Asia. And I think when you when you look at a lot of the the the, the common problems that you'll see over. You know those regions is you know you you're really seeing the impacts of of, um, of this degrading condition you see in a lot of landscapes and the yeah. and the problems that that accompany accompany that particular condition. So drought, flooding, um, uh, in the in the case of, of what you see in North Africa and the Middle East, um, you know the movement of refugees, um, the, the the tendency for armed conflict to occur. Th- those are really um, I think those those are the places where we can use a lot a lot more help and input from, you know, from folks that have an understanding of what permaculture is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is you're you're outside the American permaculture bubble and you're out there in the world in places of armed conflict, and places of really severe land degradation where people's basic livelihoods are threatened because of the ecological and soil hydrological conditions. Would you go ahead and just... Just tell us if you, if you could just name all the countries that you have worked in for our, for our viewers to really tune into what your wide perspective is.
1: Um, okay, where do, where do we start? Uh, I, I worked in uh, Western Sahara um, which, which would also cover Western Algeria. worked in Morocco. Uh, I've just come, come back from Tunisia, I worked in Jordan. Worked in uh, Palestine and the West Bank. Um, Worked in Yemen. Worked in Somaliland, which is, again, there's a distinction between Somaliland and Somalia. Somaliland is is actually technically um, the northern portion of what used to be Somalia that broke off in the early 90s. Um, uh, I've worked in, uh, I've done some consultancy work in in, uh, Saudi Arabia. Oman uh <laughs> what else um worked in uh, uh Italy, southern Italy, I've worked in Greece. I've uh, worked in Thailand. I've uh, done some work in Australia. Um I know I I know I'm missing some I'm missing right, some places. Right. Yeah. But but generally, you know, again, oh I've, I've done a uh, a consultancy work Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. Um um, so
0: you are, you're I, really I, out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've just, I've found myself in some, I think in some interesting, um, situations, uh, you know, a lot of those places I've, I've visited, some of them I have not been physically, um, we've, we've talked about, um, you know, in, in doing consultancy work, putting together, uh, p- uh, plans and, uh, you know, proposals for, for, for doing work on the ground. Uh, and, you know, it, I think the more places I've had an opportunity to to to, to go to and to see, I think the, the more threads of commonality, yeah. you know, you start to see emerge. I mean, even in, in some of the, the places I've worked in, in the States, you know, the first permaculture course I taught was on the east side of Detroit,
0: hmm.
1: um, which is, uh, you know, which is a, a, a really hard hit um, city. You know, American city, post-industrial. <clears throat> um, you know, all of the things that that uh, I think a lot of people are are really, I think, acutely aware of in in terms of you know some of the 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 problems that loom on the horizon that that uh, are hit are ready to hit a lot of of, of formerly industrial cities, and, and again, a lot of the, the problems that that accompany. Um, what happens to places when work disappears? Yeah. You know, you can, we can we can look at the, the, the Rust Belt cities, for example. Um, you know, th- those those are I, I think those are the places where, where or those are the situations where you really see the opportunities for for permaculture to be applied in a way that isn't just simply concerned with a certain type of um, kind of a, a like a type of lifestyleism. <laughs> if, yeah. if you will, I mean, you're you, you're really starting to address, um, you know, the, the the problems that that have chronically, I think, faced uh, uh, human civilization for um, you know for for millennia. Right. Um, and I think in its in, in sort of the most recent incarnation, you know, in, in looking at how um, you know industrialization and and the whole sort of industrial consumerist worldview is running its course um i, I think it, it is going to take people like the folks who are in our camp um, looking at the world in a particular way and al- and allowing for that vantage point from which we're able to see the world because of what we've been doing with this whole um this whole uh, uh permaculture um world view yeah uh, i think it's going to take more of of us to to to, to apply the things that we've learned and the things that we are advocating for to apply it in a certain way, um, for it to have a much broader appeal and a much broader impact, um, right. a much more meaningful impact. And we have to sort of break out of, I think the tendency to, uh, look at these things, uh, solely or mostly from the vantage point of, against a uh, lifestyle.
0: Yeah. You know, I think
1: it has to be something a lot, a lot more expansive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like you're really magnetized towards places that, uh, from the American perspective, we might think of as, as devastated.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I think, you know, again, I, I, my, I think my, the circumstances and the situations and the opportunities that I've been presented with, which has brought me to some of these places. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, I think the, I, well, for, well, for one, I think a lot of people would be surprised to to hear that Maybe some of these places aren't necessarily as d- dangerous
0: right.
1: as as I think they're, they're sometimes depicted to be. That's not to say that there aren't you know that, that there aren't um, um, dangers or there aren't things that you have to be aware of that that there aren't risks involved. Yeah. Um, I mean, frankly, there's some yeah. places I you know going you know there's some places in the States, I think I feel a lot more <laughs> than, than, than many of the places that I've, I've just mentioned, you know, overseas. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think what it comes down to is, you know, I think like anywhere else, um, it really comes down to your ability to be able to relate to people.
0: Right.
1: And I, I think I've just been very fortunate and very blessed to, to meet, I think some very, uh, sincere, uh, people who, who yeah. are interested in trying to, uh, do whatever they can to um, help create the conditions for for folks to live a dignified existence. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I and that that has really been for me the I think the the common that's probably one of the, been the most sort of common aspects of of the the people and the places I've had an, an opportunity to to have contact with.
0: Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. It's like all all people have a, a fundamental. Desire for just a dignified life, no matter where yeah. they are. Yeah,
1: Abs- absolutely. absolutely. Yeah,
0: because <clears throat> when I think back to, I, I wanted to talk to, about Somalia for a minute because when I think back as as an American who's digested um, U.S. media for my whole life, my first recollection of Somalia would be the whole Black Hawk Down uh, episode that happened in the early '90s. Right, and yeah. you know that was that was sort of uh, mainstream America's first perception of Somalia warlords and, you know, the ambushing of the soldiers and the helicopter and everything. And then the next place that Somalia popped up in mainstream U.S. media would be piracy, would be the images of young men on speedboats with RPGs taking over uh, oil tankers, mm-hmm. right? And then, the, and then the next real, I was just thinking back, the next big place is what just happened now, where the Trump administration ha, is attempting to basically ban all people from Somalia from U.S. soil. Um, and so I, I'd really like to hear from you, like, what's, what's the real story? I mean, what's it like for the people I mean, people that are really just seeking dignity, and, and you know, you're going there, and you're you're teaching. Per- I don't know what else you're doing besides teaching permaculture courses there. But I'm just I'm just really wanting to to humanize the situation and and tell our our listeners what it's really like, and and so we can kind of erase those media produced images of the country.
1: Well, you know, when I first when I first um, started my my involvement with, you know, with the situation there, I, I had, uh, this is probably going back six or seven years ago. And this, this is, you know, from my being connected to the, the Permaculture Research Institute. So, I, I had been um, given a contact uh, by Jeff Lawton uh, to a person that had, contact, that had gotten in touch with him about the possibility of doing work there. And this was, uh, This was an appeal made by a gentleman who was representing an organization at the time uh, called the World G-18 um, Somalia. And so this was uh, a a group that was made up of uh, a number of the different communities that sort of make up the populations that cover uh, Somaliland, Puntland, and, and Somalia. So Somaliland and Puntland are two of the regions that broke off from what used to be sort of the contiguous um, landmass or or the the nation state that was known as Somalia up until about 1991 or 1992. And uh, there was a a civil conflict um, that had ensued uh, against uh, in and around the early 90s. Um, The two regions, Somaliland and Puntland, broke off. Uh, The South was then um, identified or identified itself as as uh, as Somalia sort of the the sort of the federal this, uh, state and this the, the breakup into these different regions um, was prompted by uh, a, a number of um, factors Somalia used to be actually the, the country was 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 said to be one of the most sort of cosmopolitan um, at least in, in, if you look at a place like mogadishu it was one of the most cosmopolitan um, cities in, in Africa.
0: Yeah, I, I heard and, you saying that on another, I listened to another podcast, and I went yesterday and actually looked at pictures of Mogadishu on yeah. the internet and just saw, wow, this is actually, looks pretty nice, a lot of the areas.
1: Yeah, it's a be- it was a beautiful place. I mean, you, you see the same thing, you know, about uh, Afghanistan, you know, a lot of the, you know, you see, um, you know, pictures of Afghanistan from the, you know, from the 70s. yeah. Um, it was, you know, it was, uh, uh, quite a, I mean, in many ways it was very Western, hmm. you know, uh, um, and then eventually, you know, it, it became something very different. I mean, of course, what ended up, what ended up influencing the, the, the transformation of these places were certain sort of geopolitical events, certain policies that have been applied to these areas that, um, caused them to, to, uh, become very different places. If you look in the, in, in the, in the case of Somalia. Um, there was something called an, a structural adjustment program that was implemented by the World Bank and the uh, IMF, which essentially turned the Somali economy upside down. And um, that ended up basically driving down the the uh, value of the of the currency of the you know, of the of the national currency. But also uh, it it undermined it um, local local production of goods. Hmm. So. Um, There was an artificial lowering of the of the price of of imported goods, which essentially de incentivized the production of, say, agricultural agricultural uh, goods inside of the country, because the the locals couldn't produce goods at a price lower than than the subsidized goods that were being brought into the country. And so that really disrupted uh, disrupted things. Hmm. Um, uh, and then, uh, and then in terms of the, you know, the piracy issue, um, the, the piracy was actually prompted by the, um, the appearance of waste that had been dumped into Somali waters and was, was washing up onto the shores. Hmm. Um, and it was found that, um, uh, some of this waste happened to be hazardous, happened to be toxic. And then people were becoming ill and then, folks were going out to see where, where this waste was coming from. And there were ships that were dumping, um, uh, either radioactive waste, um, you know, or toxins that were coming from Europe. Hmm. And then it, again, it was washing up onto the shores. Uh, another big problem has been, um, the poaching of fish, uh, from Somali waters. And again, you'll see, you know, figures into the hundreds of millions of dollars, um uh, the the annual poaching of fish from somali waters um so and then generally speaking you know what has often been cast as a um you know conflicts that are initiated through the um problems seen between like tribes or clans um has been by 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 some somalis that are more familiar with the situation it's just been sort of the classic um confrontation between pastoralists and, and sedentary populations. And then, you know, you have this, this sort of, uh, chronic perennial problem of, of how do you use land when you have different groups of people that have, um, different lifestyles, you know, and it necessitates, um, their, um, utilizing, you know, local resources in a particular way and their access to those resources may sometimes cause uh, people to come into conflict with one another. Right. So it, there's nothing that's really any different about these particular human beings, you know, apart from any other. It's, it's just so happens that the conditions which have um, kind of been foisted on them by outside forces has has driven them, I think, to to do certain things that under other circumstances they would not do. Right. And so, you know, one of the things I had said was that, you know, the Somalis aren't Klingons. You know, yeah. these are <laughs> they're not some like yeah. warlike people that. Um, that's their sort of default, uh, condition. You know, it's not endemic. Um, it's something that because of the circumstances that have, have existed in in that place over the course of the last few decades, um, it's, it's, it's really, um, put them in a bad spot and just really difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah. So, so could you paint us a picture of, what it's like, you know, what your work is there, and and what it's like physically. Are you in cities? Are you in rural, rural areas? Who are you working with? What do you what are you telling them? You know, what <coughs> aspects of the permaculture curriculum? What, where are the leverage points that you've identified to hopefully shift the situation using permaculture to a more regenerative, um, more regenerative situation there.
1: Well, what, when I the, what allowed me to, to actually make the first trip, and, and for actually quite a few years, we were trying to figure out ways to resource or fund a, a trip into the region. Uh, and unfortunately, I was um, we had a, a colleague that has um, since passed, um, Paulo Mellet, um, who suggested that I talk to. Uh, a representative with the company uh, Lush, and Lush makes yeah. um, sort of uh, kind of high grade, um, mostly handmade cosmetics, you know, here in the UK, and I think they have some they have some retail um, outlets in the US. So I I, um, I started talking to one of their suppliers, a company called Buzz, Buzz Wellness, which is based in Vermont, in Burlington, and the um, the Proprietors of that business, uh, sort of the co-founders, um, uh, a gentleman named Mahdi Ibrahim, who is a Somali uh, American, Somali Canadian, <clears throat> and um, also uh, there's K- uh, Casey and Billy, uh, who are a couple of American guys that have um, also gone into business with him. They um, they've been uh, ma- making or uh, producing. Um, High grade distilled frankincense oil and um, hydrosols um, and also um, myrrh and myrrh derived products that are purchased by Lush and they're put into their, you know, their their cosmetics. And so Lush has a has a program to where they they're trying to support the communities that are harvesting the materials that are put into their their products. And so they're, sort of, they're basically reinvesting into into um, in the community, and trying to make sure that those materials are harvested in a sustainable way, so that they can ensure the long-term supply and viability of their um, of their product supply. Right. And so, um, what what uh, I was invited to do is to go to the regions where the frankincense um, is sourced, and this is mostly from the mountainous areas. Um, in a mountain range known as the uh, Dalo and the Kalmado Mountains. And this is where really most of the world's um, frankincense is sourced from. I and mean, it has been, it's mm-hmm. been that way for millennia.
0: Huh. Um,
1: even, even a lot of the frankincense that is called, for example, Omani, mm-hmm. uh, that is said to be Omani um, frankincense actually is, is sourced in, in Somalia, in Somaliland. So from in Somalia
0: is the world, it's the world center of frankincense
1: basically yeah and and one of the one of the big issues um and this has recently come up because I was, I was just in Somaliland last um, last what was it, last spring or fall yeah um, is that the the way that the frankincense is being harvested um, is actually in in some cases it's actually killing the trees mm. And you'll, we're also seeing that there that there's a major problem with um, widespread land degradation, um, mo- mostly due to deforestation. And so what they went again that the idea was, well, what if we can. We can go and link up with some of the local communities and hopefully um, introduce some of these ideas that that come from permaculture uh, and and have them participate in a program that allows for them to have a stake in remediating this, the degraded condition that they see in, in, a lot of in many portions of the region. And this, this extends out to um, you know, problems that they're having for instance and uh, in having enough uh, uh, viable um, fodder for their livestock, because really that that's what they're mostly known for mm-hmm. is they're mostly known for livestock um, in particular uh, camels, sheep and goats uh, and you know, historically, this has been the region where you'll see like a lot of the, the the nature films you would see of safaris, African safaris, they would be from that region. So they had, you know, lions and giraffes and gazelle and, you know, uh, you know, uh, all, all kinds of uh, African um, savannah animals like that. That whole setting you'll see is is right there. As a matter of fact. Um, I remember talking to to Mahdi about this, but he says he remembers. He's he's old enough to remember when they used to have elephants, huh. in, in in Somalia. Wow. And one of the big one of the what happened was, especially when you you saw the region start to have these chronic chronic problems with with armed conflict, was it basically chased um, many of the animals away. I mean, from the ones that didn't get killed, mm-hmm. um, they just generally left the region, and and then also. You know, as I was saying, with with the problem of just overall management of the landscapes, especially with the deforestation and the production of charcoal, um, this has just exacerbated the problems that they're seeing with some of the other um, varieties of um, of uh, of uh, flora. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, in many of the regions that the that the that the trees are, the, the frankincense trees, which are from the Boswellia species. <clears throat> um, there's massive amounts of degradation, of um, erosion that you'll see in the mountains. Um, and then in, in many of the savanna areas, because of the overgrazing, um, you know, they have, again, these, these chronic problems of drought and then also these big problems with flooding. Um, Mm. and you'll see that throughout, throughout the region. So, um, I've had a chance to, to, to talk to, um, uh, university students, for instance, at the university of Paragasa, which is uh, the main city in in Somaliland about the pro- the the, the um, prospect of, of introducing uh, permaculture based instruction uh, hmm. into uh, the university uh, and the interest was uh, was very was very very high. Hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I I you know I kept on getting messages from from many of the students um, asking when I was coming back um, because they really really want to get started. And they they themselves are able to see that um, they have a a serious problem that needs to be addressed. And ultimately, if they're if they're to have a future as as youth, you know, as 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 young people that are coming behind the, you know, the the generations that are getting older, they have to address this specific problem that they're seeing with the physical environment. So there's you know, there's great interest in and not only that region, but, but other places where you're seeing this problem, you know, you'll see it throughout North Africa. Like I said, I just came back from Tunisia. They, they as, can also see how permaculture can address a lot of the problems that um, are often cast as being, you know, problems of security, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that their, their social well-being, is very much tied to their ability to be able to remediate the problem that they're seeing in their physical environment. Right. You know, there's, there's, that, there's, that their security, their, their actual physical security, their regional security is very much tied to the health and the viability and the, and the, and the productive capabilities and the functional capabilities uh, of the landscapes um, uh, of the places that they live.
0: Right. That's That's really... Uh, very different from the U.S., where with mass transportation, we can have a place like the Central Valley in California that supplies such a high proportion of the vegetables, and we can have large populations centered in places like Nevada, Las Vegas area, where there's really, there's just not the carrying capacity of the landscape to, to support those people. And so, to wrap our heads around the idea that the people's very livelihood and their very quality of life is dependent on the health of the ecosystem where they live is, is a really important thing for people to understand. And, um, I'm really happy that you are painting the picture of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of
1: the, one of the things I, if I can, if I can just touch on that point, yeah. I mean, what, one of the things you definitely appreciate when you, when you go to a lot of these places is you, is you, you, you definitely appreciate the, the, the difficulty that that um, not having certain types of logistics, you know, certain types of infrastructure in place, um, I mean, really makes life a lot more complicated. So, as you said, you know, in the U.S., because we have infrastructure that has been put into place, which allows for um, long distance transport to, to be, uh, you know, viable and possible. Um in many 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 places around the globe you you simply don't have this so for example, um the first time I we went to Somaliland and I was going from hergeisa up to um a region of the country called Sanag, well it's between Sanag and Machir, which is um sort of near the northern uh coast uh up ne- up in the mountains uh it took us like two two plus days to cover you know seven hundred and fifty kilometers hmm. which was you know. <clears throat> that's not really that far. I mean, Correct. 750 kilometers It's you know, it's a few hundred miles. Um, and this was enti- This was due to the fact that there really wasn't much in the way of paved roads. Um, and this definitely made you appreciate the value of a, of a good, reliable four wheel drive vehicle. Right. Um, you know, anybody, anybody that's into off roading and, and, you know, overland travel, you know, should, should, you know, go check out this region
0: maybe maybe um, that's another a new a new tourist industry there no absolutely get everybody no, with the their funny, quads right
1: no for sure i mean if, if what's funny is you'll you'll see that there are some people that are trying to promote um you know somaliland being a, a destination for for people that are interested in in overlanding hmm. so um you know so in terms of the you know the logistics of being able to get from place to place um there there are many there there are many areas where just the whole idea of local production instead of it being like a kind of a value added uh kind of consumer attraction like we have in in the u s or in or in europe um it's just simply a matter of practicality for you know for people in many other places around the globe because yeah. it's just really hard to get to get goods from point a to point b yeah. <clears throat> now um there's, there's something else I wanted to mention um and this came up actually in the last uh the last trip I made um you know one one of the other one of the other problems you, you'll see um, arise with what's happening with land degradation in many places is that it's 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 influenced by some some other very interesting factors. One uh, um, one of the things that that that's used in that particular region, um, and specifically in Somaliland in Somalia, and also um, in places like Yemen, is a uh, a very popular mild narcotic (laughs) called cat. It's sometimes called chat or, or, or cat, but it's basically a, um, it's a leaf. It's a, you know, that that grows on a plant that um, is very popular (laughs) and it's chewed and people get sort of a mild buzz off of it. And, And, and mostly the men, you know, the you know groups of men sit around and chew on this stuff for hours a day.
0: Yeah, my my daughter spent four months in Kenya last year, and she said she yeah. tried it and thought it was disgusting. But
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really it's really nasty. I mean, yeah. you know, it's like you know, get, it dries your mouth out, and it's just uh. yeah, it's just I don't you know I don't I personally don't get it, but lots and lots and lots of people spend um, a, a lot of time and a lot of money um, chewing on this stuff. But one of the big problems is that the the land. That the, th- this crop is cultivated on, which is which is a crop that you know you can't eat,
0: uh-huh. and
1: and I think it's it's very interesting that this is something that is grown in areas that have very severe problems with malnutrition. Yeah.
0: Wait, is that is that an, an annual or perennial? It, it's a um, you know what?
1: It's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, well, it's it, it's a crop that uses a great deal of water. Right, a lot of water. Um, as a matter of fact, in Yemen, the, the figures I can remember, um, when I was there a few years ago, is that something like ninety percent of the water that's that's uh, consumed in Yemen is is used for, uh, the production of small scale agriculture.
0: Right, I'd I'd guess it was an annual if it's such a high yeah. water user. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so
1: so roughly half of that amount of water, half of that ninety percent, is used to grow cotton. Huh. Now this, now this is in a country that, um, and is easily one of the most malnourished countries in the Middle East, like easily. Wow. Um,
0: and, and also. Wait, you're talking has, about Yemen now or Somalia? Yeah, Ye- Yemen. But okay. like, you see
1: that this is also a situation that that also exists in the Horn of Africa. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 it also has a as a really serious problem with um a reliable sort of long term water supply. If you look at the city of Sana. Um, which is, you know, one of the, the biggest city in, uh, one of the bigger cities in Yemen. Um, you'll you'll find reports talking about how Sanaa is in danger of running out of water. Now, this is a city of several million people hmm. that is in danger of running out of a a viable, reliable water supply for that city. And so, what you know, what you start thinking about is, you know, well, okay, well, where do these people go? Right. You know, if if you if you're in a place that effectively um, runs out of having enough water, you know, to to provision its its citizens yeah. and and you'll see, you know, variations on this theme in many places, you know, in, in, in the region. But I, I think that, you know, this problem of land usage and how, you know, there's cert- this in in this particular instance, this this habit uh, of of using the wide usage of of this mild narcotic is, is, is really heavily impacting, um, how land is managed and, and how, and, and, and the designated usage of that land.
0: Um, it's it's interesting. I was gonna say there's a parallel, um, on the U S West coast with the resources that go into growing cannabis at this point.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what, what's interesting is, you know, the, the, a great deal of the cot that gets consumed in Somaliland actually comes from Ethiopia. And so, you know, when you're driving on the roads, especially early in the morning, one of the things that, you know, a lot of mothers would tell their young kids is stay away from the roads, you know uh, you know, in the the early morning hours because there are trucks and vans that speed down the roads, Hmm. um, delivering cot to, uh, to places and especially on the roads leading into cities like Karagesa. Um, and you 'll find little stands all over the place, and as a matter of fact it, it's become the cot usage has become so heavy that many of the places in Ethiopia that used to grow coffee now grow cot huh. and and then I, and, and I was also recently told that one of the drivers behind the um, the tendency to over harvest frankincense from the frankincense trees is people trying to make money so that they can buy cotton
0: huh.
1: So you're so it's so you're seeing how right. you know the problem of, of the, the, the degrading of land, the deforesting of, of of landscapes. I mean, you can probably say the same thing about uh, the production of charcoal. Um, is this is this drive to try to make money to to essentially finance you know a, a, a habit um, for for narcotics use? Right. Now, have so, you, which is which is amazing, you know, which is an amazing yeah. thing to you know to think about.
0: Yeah. Now, have you have you come up with any permaculture responses to that particular situation?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that this was, you know, th- this was one of the things that was so great, and being able to talk to, you know, some of the young people, you know, the the university students, is. Um, I think just just generally speaking, looking at the prospects for the, the future of the of the of the country and and the future of the of the youth, you know, the, the generations that are coming up is that there's there's not a whole lot that's being um, developed, at, you know, to be left for those, you know, for those for those kids. Mm-hmm. And they see that they're, they're, that there are there are things that they have to do. You know, there are problems that have to be addressed. There are conditions that have to be, um, they, they, they have to be ameliorated um, post haste. You yeah. know, in order for, in, in order for them to to have the prospect for for a future, if they're going to if they're going to remain in that place, I mean one of the one of the things that just recently came up, and and this was reported on, I think maybe three or four days ago, um, was there's a new famine. Um, this new, uh, uh, and actually, uh, uh, there's a, um, uh, the prediction of a proje- projected, um, regional famine, um, that would cover against Somalia and the, and the greater Horn of Africa region. Mm-hmm. And so people are having to, you know, to leave, you know, to leave their homes because they're, they're having a, a problem finding enough water and, and enough feed, um, not only for themselves, enough, enough food, not only for themselves, but also for their livestock. And so people are on the move
0: now. Are they? And, are they going? Are they headed to Mogadishu? Are they headed to big uh, cities when they're leaving their lands? Or
1: well, you'll you'll find that many many people will will often go to cities. Um, some of them will off, will also go to, to to places that have been um, set up for refugees. So one of the big one of the you know the big refugee camps, um, one of the big refugee areas in in the south is a place called Dadab. And um because' it's the biggest know, in the
0: world actually
1: yeah it's i mean it's yeah. it's basically become a, you know a, a, a city, yeah um like many again refugee, refugee um, uh, camps um unfortunately often end up becoming cities uh you know the, these folks know that these are areas that are, are receiving aid they're having um they're having supplies brought in uh and and at least you know to their minds they have you know they have the opportunity to be able to get access to at least some degree of food and water that otherwise they would not have access to. But ultimately um, that doesn't address the problem. And I think this is p- part of, um, I think just overall, and, and, and at least in some of the people I've been able to, to you know, to, to, to talk to, which are, who are trying to look at this uh, in terms of sort of the human security, the overall human security uh, situation. They're seeing how, land degradation and desertification are are non-trivial factors that need to be taken into consideration if there is any hope or prospect for a comprehensive establishment of human security globally. Hmm. And so instead of of solely looking at aid um, from the standpoint of, again, bringing in supplies, bringing in grain, bringing in (laughs) <laughs> again, uh, water, uh, foodstuffs, what have you, that there has to be the, uh, investing of resources. There has to be the funding, um, for efforts made available to actually make the places where these, um, these, uh, problems are, are occurring, uh, chronically, you have to address the actual landscapes. You know, you have to yeah. fix the problem sort of in situ. Yeah so that people have the, the capability of producing the goods, producing the things, providing those essentials, which will, you know, allow for them to live a, a decent life. Yeah. And,
0: so I was gonna say now on the on the other side of that situation, where now we've got, you know, like we're talking about the largest refugee camp in the world, I was looking at just in researching for this podcast, I saw that Mogadishu is actually the second fastest growing city on the planet. And so I'm, I'm, connecting in my mind that maybe that's from the situation you're talking about right now. Um, I, I've seen different things throughout the years that PRI, it's the Permaculture Research Institute, has done work with uh, permaculture and refugee camps. And I was wondering if you if you had any words to speak about that situation, any work that's been going on in those regards as well.
1: Well, I know, you know, Jeff, Jeff Lawton, who's the, the managing director of, of PRI, has, has, um, you know, worked worked in in a number of situations it, within the region um, that are connected to refugee populations. So, you know, in the in the mid to late nineties, he worked in uh, the Balkans. Um, uh, in the early two thousands, he worked in in Iraq, actually just before the invasion. Um, you know, before the the second the second Gulf War kicked off, um, uh, he's you know been working in. Uh, In Jordan, you know, for several years, uh, specifically the, the Dead Sea Valley, which is, um, I mean, that is, that's a, that's a decades old, um, you know, refugee population that's, that's on the other side of the, uh, you know, the, the Jordan Valley from, from Israel, Palestine. And then most recently, you know, we've, we've, we've had, uh, some, you know, some of our folks, uh, do some work in this, in the Zathara, uh, refugee camp, um, of, of you know many of the people that are that are fleeing the conflict in Syria,
0: hmm.
1: and uh, you know, and invariably you'll see. I mean, especially I think the Syria the Syrian conflict is 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 of particular interest because you know um, you know a, a lot of a lot of what lies at the heart of that particular situation is again very much rooted in you know that problem of land degradation and des- desertification. And, um, you know, they, they had experienced problems with chronic drought since the mid two thousands and, um, and, and the droughts were happening in, in many of the rural areas where, uh, you know, significant portions of the agricultural production is sourced. And, you know, what, what ended up happening was a lot of the people were leaving those rural areas that, that were no longer productive and, and no longer able to, to, uh, produce and they were moving into the cities. And of course, those, you know, the population pressures that are put on cities, I mean, you get to a certain point, especially if you're in in an area that um, is is sort of uh, rife um, or ripe for that kind of the the kind of unrest that is uh, attached to certain sort of political situations, uh, you know, that that something's going to happen. I mean, the same, you know, the same thing. the same. We saw the same thing in, in in North Africa, especially in Tunisia. So, I mean, I, I had a, you know an opportunity to talk to some of the people that were in Tunisia when uh, everything kicked off there in in 2008 and in 2011. Um, you know, one one of the the, the, the big worries um, that I was told that, that that people are having there right now is the is the possibility of another another revolution. Huh. Um, because nothing's really changed um, from from the initial one. And so uh, you know you you, you, you know uh, it's an, it's unfortunate that you know you, we, we see these patterns that emerge. Um, you know these things aren't mysteries and it's not like you know what's occurring is is something that we haven't seen before. It's just there seems to be an inability to be able to recognize the pattern and then point resources in the direction um, or in the places that they need to be put in order to um, prevent this type of unrest from occurring again.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, it's really fascinating for me to think, I mean, with the rise of uh, nationalism and um, anti-refugee governments being elected in Europe and the United States it you know it turns out that the solution again and again is permaculture because if you really want people to not be refugees and you want people to return to where they came from then you need to address the basic situation of land degradation and if and if it, it's interesting it's it's kind of like suddenly makes me want to pitch permaculture to these nationalist governments and say okay you don't want refugees <laughs> let's go, let's go fix land degradation. Yeah, the there you point. go. Right. It's oh,
1: exactly, it's exact it's exactly it. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, you know, that's one of the reasons why the, um, you know, there's this conference, I think I'd mentioned it to you, uh, you know, when we were first talking about speaking, um, I've been, att- I've been attending this conference in Switzerland for the last, uh, God, five or six years. Uh, it's, um, it's a gathering called the Co-Forum for Human Security. And, you know, there are people that come from a number of uh, NGOs, sir, uh, civil service organizations, people that uh, work in government, former diplomats or, 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 or uh, people that are that are uh, presently working in diplomacy. Um, uh, there's there's some uh, uh, corporate representation, uh, people that come from U.N. agencies. Um, we all get together and and sort of uh, discuss a lot of the issues that lie at the heart of um what creates uh, this the circumstances and, and and the and the conditions for, for people to to really find some kind of meaningful effective uh, uh, security in the world and in particular the last few years um, there's been a focus on uh, looking at the specific problem of, of land degradation and desertification and so that, that only now is, has there been this acknowledgement of the link between that condition, and how that influences whether or not you are going to see the pro, um, 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 some kind of unrest uh, emerge. Um, now, the, when you start looking at the numbers that that uh, uh, apply specifically to this phenomenon, then yeah, it, it, it's not rocket science um, as to why we are seeing the things that we that we're seeing in recent years um, become more and more, uh, prominent. So for example, if, 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 we look at the issue of land degradation, something on the order of, uh, roughly 2 billion hectares of, of land around the globe, that's roughly 2 billion hectares, about 5 million acres, 5 billion acres of land, uh, uh, around the globe is either, um, severely degraded or is desertifying. It's approximately forty percent of the of the earth's arable land mass. That mm-hmm. that number is growing at a rate of roughly ten to twelve million hectares a year. Phew. Right? Ten wow. to twelve. So that's twenty five yeah. to forty million acres of land is desertifying annually. And so yeah. so it's it's almost like this um like a skin cancer, you know, that's, that's metastasizing. And these are this, that that means that these are landscapes that are no longer productive or functional, right? So they can't produce food. Um, They are incapable of supporting the populations of people that live in these places. And functionally speaking, they're not able to provide any of the, you know, the, the essential ecosystem services that one would expect land to be able to provide so they're unable to cycle nutrient they are they're they're, you know the the hydrological um uh their hydrological um uh, uh performance is deeply affected you can't recharge groundwater um if you don't have any vegetation that means that the the hydrological dynamics in terms of the what's happening with the atmosphere precipitation all of those things that's not happening you can't sequester carbon right you you, you have no habitat for wildlife like all of those things, you're losing more and more of that around the globe. You're effectively losing portions of the globe that are capable of photosynthesizing, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah. You know, so um, I think that that, so so people are are, are starting to understand, you know, the folks have been able to think about this for, you know, you know, for, uh, you know, a little bit. They're starting to understand that, Okay, this is this is something that people actually need if they're going to have a life. And so if we're going to address the the comprehensive situation globally, as far as security is concerned, we actually have to start including this in the discussion. And so that's why we're seeing more often this gathering of people that come from a number of different fields of, of expertise uh, and And fields of endeavor um that have something to to contribute to um, some identification of a comprehensive solution,
0: and this is the kind of thing that <clears throat> we could really address if we were a mature species who is able <laughs> to look at our interconnection on the planet and say, "Oh, we all ha- we have this situation. this situation affects us well, of course climate change, ecologically, water, you know, on the on the biophysical level, the situation affects us. And this is also basically the source of armed conflict and masses of refugees moving around the world. Oh, this is a situation we need to look at. Let's all sit down and figure out how to do this. Um, but now there's a lot of blockages to uh, just being a mature a mature species and being able to do what we need to do to fix our problems.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, outside of, you know, talk, talking about a lot of these things from, from a, from a technical perspective, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, those things are, are actually quite easy. to solve.
0: I mean, yeah, it's like it's like two days of permaculture, intro to permaculture, and you can kind of, <laughs> you can pretty yeah, much I mean, get the picture, you know.
1: It, it's it's not hard. It's not a mystery. I mean, so you you come to realize that, you know, the, the 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 problem is how do you, you know, how how do you get people to be able to sort of you know empathize, yeah, with you know with folks that are that are having a hard time, and and you know how do you how do you how do you compel people, or how do you how do you create a narrative, or or tell a story, or present this in a way that moves people into into action, um, you know, and 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 gets them to do the things that that need to be done, and and also gets them to understand that that that, that there's an an enlightened self interest, yeah, and they're actually becoming involved in this. So as you were saying. You know, so a lot of, you know, for a lot of the folks that are sort of these xenophobic, um, uh, you know, right wing types, you know, if, if you don't like immigrants so much and if you don't like, you know, you know, these uh, folks that are coming in from the outside into your country and kind of muddying the waters, all right, fine. You know, put the money up that that'll allow them to go back home, you know, so, they, so that they don't have to come to your countries. And then, and then while you're at it, why don't you leave their countries? <laughs> you know, stop doing yeah. the stuff that you know. Stop doing the stuff in their countries. that's causing them to, you know, come come here. Yeah. And and I and I think this is by and large one of the problems is a lot of people that just that they're just very ignorant about the things that happen that occur in the world, and we we tend to be very provincial in that respect. Hmm. Very, we're very self interested, and and um. And, you know, and, 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 you know, people are only interested in the things that they could that, that they're able to see, you know, right in front of their face. You know, they, they don't have any consciousness or, or understanding or awareness on, you know, what's what's happening elsewhere in the globe. Yeah. And 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 in how it, it how it, it it links to them, how it affects them, how it impacts them. Yeah. And um and I think this is also, you know, this is one of the benefits of being able to. You know work outside of the outside of the u.s because i think unfortunately i think even for a lot of people who would count themselves as being relatively well informed or, or well educated um you know I, I i find that they they have a frighteningly um narrow understanding of what a, of, of what actually happens in the world
0: hmm.
1: i mean i mean frighteningly misinformed or, hmm. or 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 um or not very well-informed.
0: Yeah. So so what's what's the leverage point here? I mean, how do we actually, I, I think of it as like a leap in human consciousness where we understand that our own self-interest is actually dependent on other people having a good life, that those two things are not separate and we can't just take care of our country. And if, and if things are degrading all over the planet, that there's no bubble that we can stay insulated from forever. And I just don't know. You know, it seems like uh, it seems like in, in a sense, at least on the what you look at when you see the media and what's happening with governments, it seems like we're moving in another direction. I think of the earth as a body. And if you know, if the liver is just looking out for its own good, and it's not worrying about the heart, then you know, the blood's not going to circulate to the liver and, and we all go down. So I I, I I don't know the answer. I don't know if you have any any insight in how we can really what's a, what's a pathway to world peace? Do you see one?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think going back to the point about having an enlightened self interest and in, in actually extending yourself to, to people, I, I think one of the things I'll, I often repeat in my classes, especially when talking about, you know, the, the, the permaculture ethics, right? You know, the, the, that three pronged ethic. You know, uh, care for the earth, care for people, fair share of the surplus. You know, so, you know, as far as the, you know, the, the the earth care ethic, you know, you're safe when, you know, when the earth is safe. Right. You're taken care of when the earth is taken care of. You're in danger when the earth's in danger. That same idea extends to people like I'm safe if you're safe. Right. Okay. I, I'm in, I'm taken care of if you're taken care of. I'm in danger if you're in danger. Because if I have something that you need and and you and you get into a situation or a circumstance where you get desperate enough to where you're willing to take some risks because you're at a point to where you kind of see yourself as, as having really not much to lose, I am I am in imminent danger. Because that you you're, you're gonna come for me, yeah, right. Yeah. And, it's, and, if, and, and especially if, if if you can clearly see that I have more than I can possibly use, yeah. And so you know you you see these these Oxfam reports that are um, that have come out the last couple of years, looking at you know sort of the wealth distribution in the world, and you know like the one last year I think it said there were 62 people that had as much wealth as the bottom fifty percent mm. of 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 the you know the, the population the yeah. global population it's that's sixty two people that have as much wealth as three and a half plus billion people. This I think this past year the report said that there were eight people oh my God that had as much wealth as the bottom fifty percent of humanity.
0: Yeah. I mean
1: I mean that that's obscene. Yeah. So you're telling so these eight people can't possibly set aside or, or you know a, enough of their surplus to address okay. you know these these problems that 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 we're seeing globally or you can sit you can extend that you, you can you don't have a you don't have national governments that that see the, the wisdom and the and the strategic uh, uh, usefulness of setting aside a portion of their their, their annual budgets to mobilize a, a response that can address a lot of these problems that we're seeing globally so that, that it, it doesn't end up turning into a, you know, a national security issue, yeah. you know, a regional security issue that ha- that's going to end up necessitating them, mobilizing their military at great expense, you know, and right. blood and treasure. Right. Are you telling me that this isn't something that's smart to do? Yeah. You don't you don't have to be a, you know some kind of bleeding heart do gooder in, in order to 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 recognize the, the usefulness in 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 addressing those those problems yeah. you know in addressing those particular issues in a in a very real substantive material way yeah. and and um you know and and the the thing that keeps me going doing this is is I tell myself that look. You know, all wealthy people—they can't be all a bunch of selfish, self-indulgent—you know—children and grown-up bodies. Like, there's got to be somebody out there that's got a heart and and a brain in their head. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. He says, "Look, I mean, if you're one of these folks that are you know that are rolling in all of this money, there's only there's only but so much stuff you can buy." There's only but so much sex you can have. There's only but so much, you know, dope you can take and booze you could drink to what eventually it just gets boring. <laughs> right? It just gets boring. Yeah.
0: You know? Well, there's like paragliding like, and yeah, it's, jumping it's, out it's of like airplanes can, and skiing it's like, off mountain. Yeah, it's, it's,
1: yeah. I mean, there's only but so much you can do. Yeah. Right? Until you just like ennui sets in. <laughs> and, 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 and I, and, I mean I can say this personally there's there's nothing like the high that you get from helping somebody. Yeah. Like there's nothing hmm. there's nothing that beats that. And and I think you know eventually you you just get to the you, you you I mean you you have faith in the prospect of reaching somebody that has the you know the the resources and the will to actually get behind you know an an effort an effort of this of this type and and you can actually get some some good work done yeah it's like yeah yeah. and i think the moment you know some of these people actually get a taste of that you know it'll it it kind of i I like to think it'll snap people out of that self-interested chance Uh, i'm sorry self-interested trance you know that that you know you, you you know you seem to be entrapped by yeah and um you know, and I just I just kind of hold out hope that you eventually get to some of those people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like what would it take to fix the watersheds of Somalia and to restore the hydrological cycle and to get the regenerative processes and get vegetation growing, getting water soaking back into the ground and grass growing and the myrrh tree, you know, the frankincense trees uh, regenerating. I mean – In the scope of the planet, it wouldn't take that much. You know, in permaculture, you talk about, you know, valuing the – using utilizing the edge and valuing the marginal. Let's go to the most marginal places in the world. Well, you know, that's why I I respect what you're doing so much because there you are in – I mean, I don't know what place in the world is more marginal – considered more marginal than Somalia. I mean, there's Haiti and there's a lot of other places that are, (coughs) you know, intense issues. But – um.
1: I mean, yeah. frankly, you know, fr- frankly, the you know that that whole that region, you know, the um, the MENA region, Middle East, North Africa, the Gulf, you know, East Africa, Central Asia, though those are, I mean, the most challenging environments are are, are to me the most interesting hmm. because even in even in those places, you know, you 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 know, if you're there at the right time, you're actually able to see, you know, the the opportunities that exist to turn. You know, what seems to be an impossible situation, what it would take to turn it around. So, for example, you know, the last the last time I was in Hergesa, which you know, was, was, was a half, was a few months ago, um, I happened to be there um, when when they had flooding. You know, I was there during one of the rainy seasons and I, I was, you know, driving through Hergesa, you know, during one of the, you know, the their their heavier rains and you could see water like raging just running through the streets hmm. and and you know you can see immediately that the problem is you know the, the ground's too hard for the ground for the water to get into Yeah, and you see the same you see the same thing in a place like like a uh, like in the arabian peninsula um you'll see it in uh um you know any number of places in the arabian peninsula you see it in yemen you'll see it in saudi you'll see it in jordan that they have periods during the year, they have times during the year when they have flash flooding. You know, that's, that's one of the things that's said about deserts in Arab regions is that there are floods waiting to happen huh. because they, they all get seasonal flooding. Yeah. And, and, one of the, and the thing you see consistently in, in all of those places is that the ground is ridiculously hard. Hmm. So, you know, so, so one, of the that, one of the things that immediately comes to mind for me is, well, what if you can get somebody to put up the money to bring in, you know, some some mechanized equipment and the right attachments to be able to break up the compaction
0: Yeah. to
1: get down, to, to be able to get down deep enough um, over a large enough area to where when you do get these times of year when, you know, these times of the year where you get, you know, these large rain events and they and, they, and they're only a few, but, you know, they, they they're sizable. You know, they're sizable enough that you get you actually get flooding and quite destructive flooding. But well, what if you could break the ground up enough to where you can get the water into the ground?
0: Yeah. So, so for any any extremely wealthy person who's made it this far into this podcast here, Ramis is your man. Okay. I, hey man, give <laughs> we'll like, sure. giving
1: you know, giving my, giving my email address. That's right. Phone number. That's right. I mean, right. because the, I mean, I I think this is the thing. I think the, what's so frustrating is, um. In the grand scheme of things, this problem is, I think, embarrassingly easy and embarrassingly cheap to, to, to solve. I mean, I'll and I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the one, one of the um one one of the people I've had an opportunity to to link up with over you know over the years is is um the filmmaker uh, John Liu, John Dennis Liu, um yeah. who made the film um Hope in a Changing Climate Lessons uh Lessons from the uh, the Los Plateau. And then also another film that that was made as a result of us um, meeting each other was green gold which mm. was done for Dutch television um, it's going back a few years now and you know if you look at the numbers that are attached that are attached to the the Los plateau project um, you know this this that 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 particular effort covered an area I think it's supposed to be the equal to the size of um, belgium well it's like three like three and a half million hectares It's thirty-five thousand square kilometers if i remember correctly that was the the, the size anyway when when you look at the investment that was put into that project over the course of 10 years they were able to remediate you know the problems they had with um drought flooding chronic famine dust storms uh the silting of the, the yellow river um and also the, the, the really high rates of poverty that they had in this particular region of China, which was somewhere in the area of uh, about 60%, wow. they were able to re- cut that down by more than half, down to 27%, while also tripling the incomes of the farmers from from the, the, the four poorest regions of China um, for an average of approximately... Somewhere between somewhere around a hundred to a hundred and forty dollars per hectare over the course of a decade. Wow. That's cheap. So so if you were to break down the cost per year over the course of ten years, um in order for them to create that outcome, uh it's it would just be a little over fourteen dollars, anywhere from ten to fourteen dollars per hectare per year. Wow which allowed for them to take something like two and a half million people out of poverty in, yeah. in addition to basically completely transforming this, this formerly barren um, desertified or desertifying area of, uh, of China. Wow. So, I mean, you could, you know, so it, it wouldn't take you, I mean, really anything, um, probably, you know, a, a relatively small fraction of the annual defense budget, for example, yeah. for the U S you could l- quite literally remediate um, all of the degraded areas of the globe, yeah. like that, like without any question. Yeah, without any question.
0: Yeah. So, so I I would say to those those uh, you know the people, the governments, and investors, I would say, when when you guys finally come around to figuring out what the problem is, and and that that there's the whole permaculture. Worldwide permaculture network that's just waiting for the human will to shift in the right direction to fix the basic problems of land degradation all over the planet.
1: And and I and I also have to add that this and I and I remember saying this, um, you know, years ago, and never a few other people that have that have put you know have also expressed the same idea. This would be a massive global economic engine i mean this is a, this this could be something on this could be sort of like a a a, a, a second industrial revolution you know something on that on that scale the I mean, biological
0: like revolution yeah it's a
1: biological it's the, re, it's the regenerative revolution right it's the restoration it's the restoration revolution
0: right
1: you know that's what it is and because i mean we there there are i mean 40 percent of the earth's surface Right, 40% of the arable land masses on Earth are, are in need of this work. And you, you're telling me you can't put a, a sizable portion of humanity to work doing that and the returns that you would see that would be generated by actually investing in, in bringing these degraded parts of the Earth back. like That's not worth investing in. Right, I, have a, I find it very, very hard to believe that a business person um, looking at that particular problem could not see the potential in, in, in investing in that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. I
1: find that very, very difficult to believe. Yeah.
0: In, in, in closing, do you have uh, do you have anywhere that you want to, point people to I'm going to put stuff I'll have a page and I'll have links and such that we mentioned but is is there anything else that you want to point people towards to find you or just anything that's really inspiring or or you know what's what's your favorite book these days
1: (laughs) my favorite book these days wow um it's a good question what is my I mean I typically I'm reading um any number (laughs) any number of things uh you know, I just I just saw this and um, and uh, a link for a book called "The Great Leveler: Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century." And basically, it was an There were a couple of articles. One was in the Economist, and the other one was in um, the Atlantic. And it was talking about how basically catastrophe <laughs> has historically speaking been been sort of the great leveler of inequality um and whether or not that catastrophe has been by way of war or um some kind of uh, natural disaster or what, what have you but just something that that basically sort of shook up the order um and, and i guess just generally speaking we you know that we could talk about that you know that whole concept of um you know disruptors or disruption and and i'd like to think that um you know, we could have a relatively uh, benign disruption um, through doing this kind of work uh, that would allow for a lot of the things that many of us say we don't like about how things are occurring in the world. Um, we can apply, you know, the the, the things that I you know both you and I and the people that are in our camp are advocating for. Um, you know, I think this there's a there's a great opportunity for us to. Uh, again, level things in a much more um, uh, gentle, relatively speaking, and beneficial manner. Um, if we can, I think, get to a critical mass of people, you know, just get people to think. And I think and I think more and more people are seeing, especially with a lot of the stuff that's happening back home, um, you know, that they're they're. they're re- I think a lot of people are rethinking things. Yeah, you know, that they're have they're having to readdress what they think they know about the world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I would say, uh, (laughs) sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was going to say, I, I, and, and I'd like to believe that, you know, that, that in, in this moment of, uh, of crisis, um, that, that there is a great opportunity that is, is presenting itself. And I think, you know, and I think for, you know, for people like us, um, there's there's a, there's a, there's a chance, you know, there's a chance for us to be able to, to talk, to these people and present something that is very attractive and um, and, and would allow people to proactively and, 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 and um, uh, 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 apply a, a, a productive beneficial remedy yeah. to addressing a lot of these, you know, a lot of these issues that, that so many of us are worried about. And it's just a matter of giving people an, an opportunity to get active and, and giving them something to come to. Like actually presenting an alternative that is much more attractive to what you know we currently see, um, you know, being being put in front of us in the world right now.
0: Yeah, and, and I would, but, yeah. I, yeah, I would say that there is in in the United States right now there is a great disruption, and people, a lot of people's are have been psychologically disrupted, where the reality that they thought was consistent has been turned upside down and now there's a big gap there a gap yep. of what of where where former beliefs about how things were are suddenly gone and i would like to see uh people channeling a lot of that new freed up energy into uh permaculture and land restoration so i, I, I thanks for thanks for that that uh snippet on the the uh, book, was it The Great Leveler? That's a really, really <coughs> interesting concept going on.
1: Yeah it's, yeah, it's called, again, The Great Leveler, Violence in the History of the Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century by hmm. Walter Scheidel. Hmm. Walter Scheidel. Hmm. It was it's, it's just uh, published uh, this year, and it is on, what's the publisher? Uh, Princeton University Press. Nice.
0: Nice.
1: University Press. So. Yeah. Just something, something something to consider.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, Ramis, this has been really incredibly interesting to me personally. And I hope it's going to be as interesting to other people as it is for me. And I really thank you for taking the time. And I um, I just really respect what you're doing and um, just really thankful to be able to hear more about it and have this talk with you. So thank you so much.
1: I I appreciate you know you again inviting me to come on, Andrew, and hopefully um, we get a chance to see each other sometime before too long.
0: Are you going to be and, in I India?
1: What, oh, IPC. Yeah. Um. What What month is it?
0: It's uh no, it's right around Thanksgiving of 20, you know, this I'm, year.
1: I, I'm I might I might be free in November. I mean, the summer's pretty active, but I, I that's a that's a distinct possibility. Nice. So I uh, so I'll I'll definitely make sure I mark the calendar. But awesome. I, one of the things I wanted to say before I leave, um, you can find out um, more about. Some of the work that we're doing, if, if you go to the website for the Permaculture Research Institute, that's uh, permaculturenews.org. should be permaculturenews.org. Um, also, if you, if you just do a Google search for my name, you'll see, you know, some uh, uh, links about either courses or um, uh, presentations, uh, articles. Um, the, you, you can find any number of things um, that are that are uh, posted online. And um, anybody that wants to get in touch with me personally, you can reach me at my uh, email address. It's uh, ramis at permaculture.org.au. It's ramis, R-H-A-M-I-S, at permaculture.org.au.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, sir. All right. Peace. Peace. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.